All right, good evening, Hume Lake. How we doing? Right on. Hey, if you have a Bible with you, Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6 is where we're going to be tonight. Let me take you on a journey tonight of where we've been and where we are. Here's how this story began. You'll remember on Monday morning we opened up with the story of Daniel. And you'll remember that the story of Daniel begins with a battle, a war, a siege of a city. There's two armies fighting against each other. The first is the armies of the people of God, the people of Judah in their capital city of Jerusalem. And they are waging war and defending their city against King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. You've got the people of God, the covenant people of God before their God, Yahweh, and you have King Nebuchadnezzar of the wicked and evil empire of Babylon. And if you remember back to Monday morning, you'll remember that God looks down at this war raging on the earth and he picks a winner. And every inch of us, every part of us, every part of our being thinks that God should pick the people of Judah. But instead, he chooses Babylon. God picks a winner, and he picks the winner in Babylon. We ask the question, why does God pick Babylon and not Judah? And we have an answer for that. It's because our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. Because our God is who he is, and you don't get a vote. You can receive him as he is. You can reject him, but you cannot reshape him into your image. And so what God does is he picks a winner, and the people of God are exiled to Babylon. They're dragged away hundreds of miles away from their homeland, and they are put into a new place, a new city, a new empire, a new context. They are in a place that is three things, if you remember. It is a place that is uncomfortable. They are in a place that is unfriendly. They are in a place that is uncompromising. They are navigating their way through this unfriendly, uncomfortable, uncompromising place. They're trying to understand what it means to be faithful to Yahweh in the midst of this place that is trying to oppress them, trying to crush them, trying to destroy them. And the king of this place that is uncomfortable, uncompromising, and unfriendly is a man named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has tried to kill Daniel's three friends. He has tried to end Daniel. He has tried to do everything, and yet he has failed. And the God of the universe meets Nebuchadnezzar and reminds him, that Nebuchadnezzar only has two choices in life. And Nebuchadnezzar's two choices are he will humble himself or God will humble him. And last night what we saw is this same Nebuchadnezzar is humbled by God and finally he turns his eyes toward heaven. He hits rock bottom. And at rock bottom he recognizes that he indeed needs the God of heaven. He turns his eyes toward heaven and his life and his sanity are restored. And tonight... I want to be abundantly clear from the beginning of this message. Tonight, I want to give an invitation to the young man or the young woman who is here tonight who is ready to turn their eyes toward heaven. I think God has brought some of you here this week because you have finally hit rock bottom. You have recognized it's not working on your own. Your way of doing things, your way of operating, your way of going through this life is no longer working for you. And tonight, I'm going to give an invitation for some of you for the first time in your life, to turn your eyes toward heaven and recognize that God is who he says he is and he can rescue you. But we see Nebuchadnezzar do this. And then chapter four is gonna end and that's where we were last night. Chapter five picks up with Nebuchadnezzar's next generation, his son. His son does not follow in Nebuchadnezzar's repentance. In fact, his son is filled with pride and filled with hubris. His son is filled with the idea that he's got this thing and he doesn't need God. His father was weak, but he is strong and he can do it all by himself. And the shocking reality that we reach at the end of chapter 5 of the book of Daniel is this. 
that Nebuchadnezzar's son sees writing written on a wall. And that writing indicates that his kingdom is going to be taken from him that very night. And the shocking turn to the story is the most powerful empire the world has ever seen collapses because of the pride and the arrogance of Nebuchadnezzar's son. Let me tell you something tonight. There is coming a day of judgment, and that day of judgment is coming soon. And if you decide to stand out in pride and arrogance and say, I don't need God, forget that, I'm doing my own thing, that judgment is coming whether you are ready or not. It comes for Nebuchadnezzar's son. Nebuchadnezzar's son loses his kingdom, and on that very night, the Persian Empire takes over. Babylon itself falls, and a new king, a new emperor, a new ruler is ruling over what used to be Babylon and ruling over these exiled people of God. That's where we pick up the story tonight in Daniel chapter 6 with a new empire, a new king, a new person who's in charge. And I want you to see this in verse 1. It says, it pleased Darius. So stop. Nebuchadnezzar is gone. His son, his son is gone. And then you have Darius who becomes the new ruler, the new king, the new emperor over the Persian empire, the Medo persian empire that is ruling now over the earth. And here's the story of this new king. You're going to recognize some things from the old king. It says, it pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom. Satraps is just another word they use for governing officials. We talk about prime ministers or governors or mayors or anything like that. It's just, that's just what they are. They're governor officials with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel was so distinguished himself amongst the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps and went as a group to the king and said, may Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any other god or human being during the next 30 days, except you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went to his upstairs room where the windows were open toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God for what he had done before. These men went as a group and found Daniel praying, asking his God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about the royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the laws of the Medes and the Persian, which cannot be repealed. They said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. And when the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him 
into the lion's den. Here's the story we're going to look at tonight. It is the story of Daniel, and let me summarize for you the seven parts of the story we just read. Number one, Daniel was a faithful leader. He was faithful. Number two, not everyone liked Daniel, so they tried to take him out as a leader. Number three, but Daniel lived so well, there was no charge against him that they could levy. They couldn't find a thing to actually pin on him. Number four, so the authorities came in with a way to trap Daniel. Number five, Daniel is arrested while praying. Number six, Daniel is sentenced to death without a trial. And number seven, Daniel is left to die a brutal death. Now hear me on this. If you grew up in church, and I don't assume all of you did, but if you did grow up in church, I wonder if those seven parts of that story sound familiar to you. I wonder if you've heard this one before. I wonder if you would recognize that when you read the Old Testament, you are not just reading random stories about random people. You are reading stories about a people who are a shadow. The shadow points to the substance. The shadow here is Daniel. The substance is Jesus. The arrow pointing forward is Daniel. And the arrow is pointing towards someone called Jesus. If you know the story of Jesus, here's the story of Jesus. That Jesus was a faithful leader. He was faithful to God and faithful to his followers. Not everyone liked Jesus, so they tried to take him out. But Jesus lived so well, there was no charge they could actually pin on him. So the authorities came up with a way to trap Jesus. Jesus was arrested while praying. And Jesus is sentenced to death without a trial. And Jesus is left to die a brutal death. In other words, what I want you to understand tonight is that the story of Daniel is a story that is meant to stir our hearts for something more powerful, more real, more beautiful. It is the story of Jesus that the story of Daniel points to. Jesus is the real and better Daniel. Jesus is the Daniel that fulfills the entire purpose of God's plan in this world. You'll remember right from the beginning of the story, I said the point of reading Daniel this week is not that you would live just like Daniel lived. You can't live like, just like Daniel lived. You don't live in his circumstance and have his problems and have his friends and his enemies. But what you can do is you can trust the same God that Daniel trusted. And that's what we're going to see in this story here tonight, that we can trust this God. He is a God worthy of our trust. So we pick up here with Daniel, unjustly sentenced to death, thrown into a lion's den for a brutal death. And here's what it says here in the end of verse 16. It says, the king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. May your God, who you serve continually, rescue you. Why does the king say this? Why can't the king just rescue Daniel? He's the king after all. But what we read over and over and over again in this story is that the rules of the game were this. If the king made a law, even the king couldn't unmake the law. Once the law was said, it is set. And so the king looks at Daniel and says, I have no power to rescue you. You have no power to rescue you. Maybe your God can because that's your only hope. And here's what I want you to know right here in this chapel tonight. You have a problem on your hands. Your problem is sin. You are separated from a holy God and you can't fix you. No one can fix you. Only God can. Let me put it this way. I want to introduce you to an individual and this individual's name is Mike Powell. Let me show a picture of Mike Powell up here on the screen. Mike Powell is a U.S. Olympian and he is the world record holder. He's held it for like 30 years for the long jump. His long jump was 29 feet and a quarter. Here's what that means. Imagine this stage isn't up because that would give me an advantage. And imagine I was running from here and I ran and I jumped. Mike Powell would jump from this spot. I measured it earlier and he would jump just past where the balcony comes down. That's how far Mike Powell can jump. He is a long distance. It is unbelievable that he jumped almost 30 feet. I don't know if that record will ever be broken. Now, 
I want you to imagine I set up a competition. And the competition is between me, Brian Howard, who for whatever gifting I have, I am not an Olympic athlete. And I decide I'm going to have a little game with Mike Powell. And here's the game I set up. I say, Mike, you and I, we're getting in the car. We're driving east. And we are going to drive to the Grand Canyon. Let's see the Grand Canyon up here. So I say, Mike, here we go. You and me, Mike. And he goes, what's the game here? I said, here's the game. You and I are going to line up on this side. We're going to jump to the other side. He's like, excuse me. I said, don't ask questions, just jump. That's what you do here. And so we go. And we both take off. And we're running, and he's running faster because he's an Olympic athlete and I'm me. Um, and so he's running a little faster than me. And then we both jump. And here's the thing you know. You know how this is going to go. I'm going to jump a little bit. But then ultimately my jump isn't going to make it very far. And I'm going to plummet to my death in the river below. Mike Powell, on the other hand, is going to run, and he is going to jump far further than Brian Howard. And yet Mike Powell is going to plummet to death in the river below. Here's what I need you to know tonight. I need you to know that there is a gulf that separates you and God. And you might be the best church person in the world. You might be the worst sinner in this room. You and the others, the worst sinner and the best church person, neither of you can get across that canyon. Neither of you have it in you. Only God can rescue you. Only God can save. Some of you think, wow, I, I go to church a lot. I know the Bible. I do good things. I don't sin like those people anymore. I, I'm not like those people over there, so surely I can make it to God on my own. Know what you are? You are Mike Powell who's going to plummet to your death, just like the person in this room who has been far from God and running from him your whole life. You have a problem on your hands that you cannot fix. You have a problem on your hands just like Daniel that nobody but God can fix. Here's what Romans chapter three and verse 23 says, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have tried to cross that canyon and plummeted to their death in the river below. And all are justified and freely by his grace through the redemption that comes in Christ Jesus. In other words, you've got a problem, you can't fix it. But praise God, there's a son of God in heaven who can. I want you to see this in verse 17. It says, a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the ring of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. And this is the end of the story. At least it should be. Daniel should be ripped apart by lions. They should rip his bones and his flesh apart. There should be blood all over the floor. This should be the end of the story, the credits roll, worst movie you've ever seen. The situation cannot be changed. Daniel is doomed. There's nothing that can be done. It's over. Why are we even trying? Why are we even keeping on reading? Why even continue with this story? There's nothing good that can possibly come of this. And you know what I'm convinced of? I think there's some of you in this room who think the exact same thing about you and God. You're convinced that the story's over. You're convinced that God would never want a young woman like you. God would never want a young man like you. After what you did last month, after what you did last week, after what you did last night, there's no way God would want me. And here's what I want you to know about our God. Our God looks down from heaven at you, not filled with contempt, but rather filled with compassion. The God of the universe looks at you, and he is not filled with contempt and disgust. He is filled with compassion and delight. He looks at you from heaven with everything you've done and says, you don't think I'd want anything to do with you? I want everything to do with you. Come to me anyway. And you go, I don't have the strength. Come to me anyway. It's like this. Um, earlier this year, my one-year-old Hope, who I've mentioned to you a few times, uh, she started to learn how to walk. And, and, and honestly, watching your kids learn how to walk is one of the coolest things for a parent. 
It's just one of the best things in the world. You see my daughter Hope right here, and this is her earlier this year when she was learning how to walk. Yeah, yeah, she's really cute. Um, and here's what you need to know. Um, what you need to know about when a kid, when they start to walk, um, is the first thing they do when they learn how to walk is they learn to what's called pull up. So they'll get up to a couch and they'll pull themselves up and steady themselves on a chair or a couch. And then what they'll do is they will turn from that and they will steady themselves on their own. And then they will do my favorite thing, the deep squat. They will just stand there and deep squat for a little bit. And then they figure out that they could actually start to take a step. And as a dad, when your kid starts to take a step, someday if you have kids, here's what you must do. It is the rule for all dads. You don't just stand there and watch. You get down on your knees. And you say, come to daddy. Come to daddy right now. And here's what happens. It's the most tragic thing in the world. They take one awkward step, and when their foot hits the ground, they're so surprised that they fall over. Now, if you, if you fell over, you would be wise enough to use your hands to catch yourself. Babies are not you. They just fall directly onto the ground. It is the saddest thing in the world. And then, and then they, you get them back up, and I'm going, come to daddy. Like, come to daddy. And she's looking at me, and she's smiling, and she takes one step, and then she gets the other foot down. And then she topples like a tower onto the ground over and over and over again. But can I tell you this? Standing there, kneeling there, watching my daughters take a step or two and then fall to the ground. There was never one moment where I looked at her and thought, you are one pathetic baby. <laughs> Seriously, two steps? That's all you've got right now? You can't do more than that? How about you try again? In fact, why don't you not get my attention until you can actually walk all the way over to me? You are pathetic. Don't even try. I'm sick of you. I'm tired of you. That's ridiculous. Why? Because I'm a dad. You know what the tragedy is? Some of you think that's how God sees you. Some of you think and you're stumbling and you're falling and you're sinning and you're failing toward God that he looks at you and thinks you're pathetic and he hates you. But I'm here tonight to declare that there is a God who loves you and sees you. He is not filled with contempt for you. He is filled with compassion. He is not disgusted with you. He is filled with delight. He is your Father in heaven who says, come to me. Even if you stumble, even if you fall, even if you've failed, even if you've done everything wrong in this world, I want you, I love you, I see you, I'm your dad, and there is nothing that could ever change that. You are welcome tonight to come to that Father. It goes on this way. It says in verse 18, then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating, without any entertainment brought to him. He couldn't sleep. Verse 19, at the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God who you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? And then he waits for a response. And then suddenly out of the den, Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel. He shut the mouths of the lion. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought and they were thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the lion's den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Tonight, if you have a Bible in front of you and you're taking notes, 
I want you to underline or circle these words in verse 23. The words that say, when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him. Underline that, circle that, highlight that. And then skip down to verse 24 where it says these words. That the others had the lions, underlines the words, crushed all their bones. They crushed all their bones. Why am I highlighting these two things? In the story of Daniel, Daniel survives the lion's den. And we are told that there was not a single wound found on him. But Daniel's enemies instead were thrown into the lion's den and they were crushed, they were destroyed, they were bruised, and they were obliterated. And here's what I need you to know tonight, Hume Lake. This, this is where the story of Jesus and the story of Daniel take a very different road. See, before I told you that the story of Daniel and the story of Jesus look a lot the same, but I need you to know in this moment they go opposite directions. I need you to know in this moment where Daniel gets out without a wound and his enemies get crushed, I need you to know in the story of Jesus it is the exact opposite. I want you to know the story of Jesus is the story where Jesus is the one who is bruised, Jesus is the one who is crushed, Jesus is the one who dies, and his enemies, you, me, all sinners, we get to go free. Here's what it says in the book of Isaiah about Jesus prophesying about him, that he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds, we are healed. The story of Jesus is the story of Jesus getting crushed for us, that we, his enemies, might go free. It is the miraculous story of Jesus' death and the story of Jesus' resurrection. But I need to be clear tonight, when I say that Jesus died, don't you dare have it in your mind that he slipped off into a quiet sleep. It's not just that Jesus died, it's that Jesus was tortured, that Jesus was slaughtered, a first century historian who had nothing to do with Christianity described the cross, the crucifixion of human beings in this way. He called it the most wretched of deaths. The most wretched of deaths. See, the story of Jesus is the story of a man who had his disciples. He was proclaiming the kingdom of God. People got jealous and upset about him and offended that he was declaring that he was king and they were not. So they made up a plan to arrest him. They made up a plan to kill him. They arrested Jesus in the middle of the night while he was praying. They arrested him with his disciples. They took Jesus and they put him in jail and they mocked him and they spit on him and they beat him and they belittled him and they called him names. And it would get far worse for Jesus as he is put in trial in the middle of the night. And he is sentenced by the Roman authorities to a death and a death on a cross. He's done no crime, he's done nothing wrong. And yet in order to appease the crowds that want him dead, he is sentenced to death. Before he goes to the cross, he is whipped and he is flogged. And in the ancient Roman world, how they would whip and flog someone is they would put them on their knees. They would wrap their arms around a pillar or a post made of stone or wood and tie their hands. They would strip them of all their clothes and then they would take a whip. And with that whip, they would tie on the end of it rocks and glass. They would tie on parts of bone and they would whip against the person's skin and it would rip their flesh open. Sometimes that whip would wrap around the rib cage and actually break bones and rip open their skin, allowing their organs to spill out. Internal bleeding, blood everywhere. But that was just the beginning of Jesus' suffering. That same Jesus had a crown of thorns pressed down upon his head, all the nerve endings in his head exploding in pain, blood running down his face. They would lift that Jesus up, put a robe on him to mock him as king and make him carry his cross. 
up a hill in the middle of the Middle Eastern sun, dehydrated, exhausted from the night, and they would bring him to a hill. That hill was called Golgotha. The other name we call that hill is the hill called Calvary. And they would put him on that hill, and they would lay him down upon the cross, a vertical beam and a horizontal one. They would stretch out his arms, and sometimes in crucifixion they would pull so hard, they would remove the arms from the socket. They would lay him down. They would take a nail about this long and drive it through Jesus' wrists. They would drive it through his wrists so that the bones would be able to hold the entire weight of his body on the cross. Pain would explode from every center of his nerves through his body. Nails through his feet. And then they would hoist him up on the cross. Now every time you see a picture of the cross, you see a modest Jesus who's covered in this section of his body. You would see a Jesus who is covered for modesty's sake. But the Romans had no interest in modesty. The Romans had one interest, it was humiliation. It was to make a statement. We have every reason to believe that Jesus was crucified naked, ashamed, exposed to the world, bleeding from every part of his body, suffering and dying from the beating and the bruising and the bleeding. But on the cross, it wasn't a loss of blood that killed you. When you're hanging like this on a cross, your lungs are not able to breathe. And so in order to breathe, you must push up on the nails through your feet, just to grain one breath. And Jesus would do that over and over and over again. And on the cross, you know what Jesus was crying out? He was crying out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He was crying out, guys, would you take care of my mom? God, God, would would you do this? God, would you save me? God, would you rescue them? He cries out, I thirst. I'm just in need right now. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then finally in his last breath, he cries out the Greek word tetelestai, which means it is finished. He breathes his last, and Jesus dies. Jesus didn't just die on the cross. Jesus was tortured. Jesus was slaughtered. But you know the most shocking thing I can tell you tonight? The reason I go into so much gore and detail about the cross is because I want you to know of all the pain Jesus experienced on the day he was crucified, the physical pain I just described was the second worst pain Jesus experienced. The second worst pain. You know what the first worst pain was? Was that on the day Jesus died, he willingly, joyfully, and voluntarily took upon himself the wrath of God that was due for your sins and mine. And God the Father, instead of pouring out the punishment you deserve for your sins and I deserve for my sin, instead he pours it out on Jesus who willingly takes it upon himself. Meaning that Jesus on the cross suffered more than any sinner ever will in hell. He receives the wrath of God. 2 Corinthians 5 says this, that God made him who had no sin, Jesus, to become sin for us. Meaning he took upon Brian Howard's sin and your sin and your sin and your sin and your sin. He took it upon himself that we might become the righteousness of God. God pours out the wrath of God upon his son who willingly takes it and he willingly took it for you, the suffering and the agony of the cross because he loves you. That's what love does. Love willingly takes pain and suffering from another. I remember four years ago, my daughter and my wife were at a park. And they were playing at the park. My daughter's three years old at the time. And she steps off one of the playground pieces wrong. And she falls to the ground. And she splits her chin open. She's bleeding everywhere. And my wife calls crazy, just crying at the park and says, you need to meet me at the hospital. And so I drive over as fast as I can. I get to the hospital. I meet up with my wife and daughter. We take her into the emergency room, and immediately the nurse goes, she needs stitches. And we bring her into this room, and we lay her down on this table, and the nurse comes in, and we know what's about to happen. She's bleeding from under her chin, and we know what has to happen in this moment. She needs stitches. They need to tend to this wound, and they need to do it quickly. And friends, I want you to know there are certain sounds 
that if I'm 85 years old someday, it will never get out of my mind. And one of them was my three-year-old little girl laying on a table, screaming and writhing in pain as they drove that needle once again and again and again and again through her chin, screaming out for it to stop, screaming out in pain. Right now, as I say those words, I can hear her voice in my mind. And what I want you to know is this, as her dad, I would have done anything in that moment to get on that table for her. I would have done anything in that moment to say, put the pain in my chin instead. I'll take it, I'll take the hit. Don't make her take it. I don't want her to have to experience. I would have done anything in that moment to take the pain. Why? Because I love her. That's what Jesus did for you. Jesus took it for you. He took the full brunt of God's wrath on your behalf. That's what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus suffered. He was the sacrifice, but he was also your substitute. He experienced the wrath of God for you. And you all know why that's the best news in the entire world? Because there's no wrath left for you. God put it all on Jesus. So that for those of you who come to the faith that we are talking about tonight in the Lord Jesus Christ, for those of you who are in him, there is no condemnation left for you. This is the good news of the gospel. And you know how we know that's true? Because that same Jesus who cried, it is finished, is buried in a tomb. Everyone leaves him for dead. They think he's done. They're moving on with their lives. And then three days later, Jesus gets up from the graves. He shakes off death. And he says that I'm the king of kings, the Lord of lords, and no one puts me down forever. That Jesus rises from the dead, proving that your sins are finally and fully paid for. The bill is paid. The check is cashed. This is salvation. This is the gospel. Jesus dies for our sins. He rises from the dead for our salvation so that we can know that our bill of sin is paid before God. It is paid in full. There's nothing more for you to contribute. It's like this. So we got married March 1st of 2013. We stayed that night in a hotel in Westlake Village. And then the next morning, we got down to Los Angeles International Airport to go to Hawaii for our honeymoon. My wife and I are down at the airport. Um, and we, certain people like to get to the airport right before their flight. That's kind of me. And my wife likes to get there like 12 hours early. So we're 12 hours early. And we're there and we decide to get some lunch because we have forever to kill. So we're, we're down there and we're eating at the restaurant. And one of the things you need to know is that once you get married, um, something happens in you like a, this little flip, uh, switch flips where you get to now use a word you've never used before in your entire life. I got to use the word wife. And so everywhere I'd go at, like TSA, I'd be like, uh, I'll let my wife go first, please. Would you please stop? I'm with my wife here. And so when I got up to the counter to ask for a table at the restaurant, I didn't say, can I have a table for two? I said, can I have a table for me and my wife? Because I want to use that word. It's exciting. It's a new thing I get to say. And so I'm obnoxious, and I'm telling everyone who knows, I just got married to her. Can you believe it? Right? I'm telling everyone about it. We have a wonderful long meal. We sit, we talk, we enjoy, and then we go, actually, it's time. we got to go over to our gate. So I asked for the check and I asked if they could bring it by and the waiter comes by and says, okay, I'll be right back. She runs off to get the check. She comes back. She comes back again. She kind of looks confused and she comes back to us and says, hey, I need you to know something. Someone in this restaurant heard you talking about the fact that you got married yesterday. They were so excited for you that they decided to pay for your bill here at the restaurant. So, so right now you're good and you guys can go get on the plane. And that was the most bizarre experience of restaurant in my life. Because you're used to, I eat the food, I pay the bill, after the bill is paid, then I leave. I ate the food, the bill was paid, I paid nothing, and I walked out of there. That's the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus has paid your bill. There's nothing more for you to pay. In that moment, it's not like I could have paid for the meal again, it was already paid for. 
I could have thrown all the money in the world at it and the meal was already paid for. All I had to do in that moment was get up, say thank you, and live the rest of my life in gratitude. Get up, say thank you, and walk in joy for what had just happened to me. That's the gospel. You don't contribute anything. You don't pay anything. You don't offer anything before God. He's done 100% of the work. He's paid the bill. You pay nothing. That's grace. That is the scandal of the gospel. The scandal of the gospel is that Jesus was cut off from God. On the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is cut off from God the Father so that you will never have to be. On the cross, Jesus is beat up. He is bruised so that you don't have to beat yourself up every time you sin because your sin has already been paid for. And Jesus is exposed and naked on the cross as your substitute so that you don't have to live in shame anymore. This is the gospel, that Jesus took it all for you. You contribute nothing. Jesus contributes everything. This is the invitation for you tonight to receive and to know the good news of Jesus Christ. And how do you apply that to your life? I want you to see that right here. Verse 25 of our story, if you've still got Daniel 6 open. It says, then King Darius wrote to the nations and the people of every language on the earth. May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that every part of my kingdom must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed, and his dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves, and he performs signs and wonders in the heavens and the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. Notice what King Darius has to say about God in heaven. Notice what he has to say about Yahweh, the God who is who he is. He rescues, he saves, he redeems, he makes whole, he forgives, he pardons. And I need you to hear this. He rescues Daniel from the power of the lions, and that same God rescues you from the power of hell. That's exactly what our God does. He rescues and he redeems. He saves and he makes whole. He takes the worst of sinners, the farthest away, the person who's hit rock bottom, the person who is hopeless, and says, I'm gonna save you and rescue you, not because you're awesome, but because I am. And here's the question we wanna answer tonight. How do I receive that salvation? If Jesus died on the cross to pay my bill of sin, if Jesus died on the cross in my place, how do I receive that salvation? And the answer is simple, it is two words. You ask, you ask, you cry out to God and you ask for it. See, all throughout the scriptures, there is a phrase. This phrase is used over and over and over and over again for the people of God as they interact with God in a desperate place, in a, in a sinful place, in a broken place, in a place where they need rescue, there's a phrase. And I wanna show that phrase to you tonight as our invitation this evening. It is this phrase in Romans chapter 10 and verse 13, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How do you get saved? How do you get right with God? How are your sins forgiven? How are you pardoned? How are you made whole? You call upon the name of the Lord. Look at this verse on the screen right now. You see this first word. That first word says everyone. Who does everyone include? It includes everyone. It includes you if you grew up in church and you've been walking with Jesus. It includes you if you grew up in church and you're a total hypocrite and you've got a secret life and no one knows about it and you've got everyone fooled. It includes you. It includes you if you've been running from God your whole life. It includes you if you have cursed God and told him to die. It includes you if you have gone your own direction and done your own thing and lived in sin and lived in debauchery. God looks at you and says, everyone is welcome to this invitation. 
There is no person in this room hearing the sound of my voice who is excluded from this invitation. There is no place you have gone that is too far. You have not out God's grace. It is an immeasurable, it is an infinite ocean. You could never consume it all. It's just everyone, everyone who calls. To call out to someone, to cry to someone is to ask for help. It is to say, I cannot do this on my own. Sometimes people ask me, Brian, is there any type of person God wouldn't save? And the answer is yes, there's one type of person God won't save. You wanna know the one type of person God won't save? It's the person who doesn't think they need saving. If you don't think you need God to save you, God's not gonna do it. If you've got this on your own, if you think you've got this sin thing on your own, you've got this life thing on your own, you don't need God, you've got this thing, you're cool, high school's going well, life is going well, everything's good. If you don't call out to the Lord, he doesn't save you. Because it's everyone who calls out, who cries out, who comes to the end of themselves and says, I've reached rock bottom, so tonight, God, I plant my foot in the ground. I repent, I turn back to you, and I throw myself on your mercy. It says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. The word the Lord here is not the word Lord we've been looking at in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, that word Lord with a capital L is the word Yahweh. It is the God who is who he is. When it says the Lord here, it includes Yahweh, it includes Jesus, but it is the Greek word kurios. The Greek word kurios does not mean God. The Greek word kurios means king. It means master. It means the one who is in charge of your life. And what I want you to know tonight is this, that if you are gonna call on the name of the Lord, it is not just saying, God, would you save me from my sin, but I'm gonna go do my own thing now. No, if Jesus is not the Lord of your life, then Jesus is not the one you're calling on to save you tonight. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. To call upon his name says, not just I want you to forgive me of my sin, but I'm gonna follow you and you're gonna be in charge. You're gonna call the shots. I'm gonna submit my life to you. You know, I've been in church services and camps where I've heard pastors get on stage and they say a phrase, and I'm gonna talk about that phrase. And if you've heard it before, that's fine. I'm not here to pick on anyone, but I am here to be clear tonight. I've heard people say the phrase that tonight I'm calling you to make Jesus the Lord of your life. To make Jesus the Lord of your life. And I wanna be abundantly clear. You don't make Jesus the Lord of anything because he already is the Lord of everything. He already is. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. You don't make him Lord. You submit to him as Lord. You confess him as Lord. You acknowledge him as Lord, and you revere him as Lord. To call upon the name of the Lord is to say that Jesus is the high king above all kings. He is the sovereign one over the entire universe. I call on him to rescue me and to run my life from here on out. Everyone, everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, it doesn't say might be saved, doesn't say could be saved, it doesn't say will be saved. If you're a good boy and girl, or if you call on Jesus' name, you'll be saved unless you mess up or sin too many times. It doesn't say you could or might be saved. It says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's a promise. You can take it to the bank. And our God is a promise maker and a promise keeper. So here's the invitation for you tonight. If you've hit rock bottom, if you've been walking in your sin, if you've been doing your own thing and going your own direction, there's an invitation from the king of the universe that is extended to you tonight. And the invitation is simple, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the invitation for you tonight. If tonight is the night you want to put your faith and trust in Jesus, call on his name. Say, God, I give everything I know of me to all I know of you. I don't have all the answers. I don't know everything. All I know is that I've been going my own direction and it's not working. So I repent, I confess, I turn to you. God, rescue me, save me, forgive me of my sin. Right now, 
I want to give you an invitation to do exactly that. So here's what we're going to do all across this room. We're going to invite you to close your eyes and to bow your heads. There's a reason we do this. The reason we do this is because I need you to know something. I need you to know that the scriptures say it is appointed once for every human being to die and to stand before God in judgment. Which means there comes a day where you die and you will stand before the throne and the king and the judge of the universe. And the person sitting to your left will not be there. And the person sitting to your right will not be there. Your mom won't be there. Your dad won't be there. Your pastor won't be there. I won't be there. You will. And so in this moment, you are, you are closing your eyes, you are bowing your heads, because right now you need to do some business with God. Some of you called on the name of the Lord years ago. Praise God. Stay faithful. Remember the gospel. He saved you then. He's saving you now. But tonight, I'm going to invite some of you who have never called on the name of the Lord to do that right now. I'm going to pray a prayer. And it's not some special prayer. This is the only way to say it. I just want to lead you in a way of calling on the name of the Lord. And if tonight's the night you need to do that for the first time, I want you to pray this in the quietness of your heart. I just want you to call out to the Lord right from your heart, straight to him. He can hear you. He's listening. I want you to pray this. Say, God, I confess that you created me. You are the high king of the universe, the king of my life, and the king of my heart. And God, I confess that I've sinned and fallen short of your glory. God, I've gone my own way, I've done my own thing, and tonight, I repent of my sin. I confess my sin, and I throw myself upon the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ. God, tonight, I call upon the name of the Lord that you would save me and that you would be my king forever. God, tonight, I give all I know of me to all I know of you. Save me, O Lord, I pray. And if tonight you prayed that prayer right now, if tonight's the night you're saying, hey, I prayed that, I'm calling on the name of the Lord tonight. On three, I just want you to open your eyes and look straight at me. One, two, three. All across this room. There's still a moment if you need to do that. Look straight at me. Keep looking straight at me. So those of you looking at me right now, I have two questions for you. I don't want to make a hypocrite. I don't want to deceive anyone. I don't want to control and manipulate anyone tonight. Tonight, if you're looking at me right now, are you confessing that Jesus Christ is your Savior, that you believe he died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead to forgive you for your salvation? If so, nod your head yes. And if not, you can close your eyes. I don't want to make a hypocrite of you. And tonight, are you confessing that Jesus is Lord? He's king. He's actually in charge of your life going forward. And however much you fall or stumble, you are walking after Jesus from now on. He calls the shots. If so, nod your head yes. Awesome. Those of you looking at me right now, here's what I want you to know. This promise on the screen right now doesn't apply to you someday in the future. It applies to you right now, in this moment. You are saved, you are redeemed, you are forgiven, you are justified, you are reconciled to a holy God. That canyon between you and God just shut tonight. And you're saved. And this is a remarkable thing. The scriptures actually say that when people like you come to faith in Jesus Christ, heaven itself and its angels are rejoicing. Like right now there's a party going on in heaven because you have called upon the name of the Lord. And if there's a party going on in heaven, maybe this chapel space tonight should reflect that. Maybe we should get to celebrate with you and with heaven. So those of you looking at me right now, I have one more task for you tonight. You've done something true, and now I'm going to ask you to do something courageous. I'm going to count to three in just a second. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. 
Standing to your feet doesn't save you. You standing before people doesn't make you right with God. You're right with God because you've called on his name. But when you're saved, you aren't saved on your own. You're saved into a church, into a family, into a group of people that God has been building over all of human history. And we want to celebrate with you. And so tonight, if tonight's the night you called on the name of the Lord, now's your time. Now's your moment. On three, would you stand to your feet? One, two, three. On your feet right now. All around this room. Let me ask this question. Is there anyone else who needs to stand? Stay standing. Is there anyone else who knew they needed to do it? I see you. Yes, yes, young lady. I see you up there. Child of God, here's what I need you to know. Long before you were born, long before you took your first breath, God knew you, God saw you, God predestined you, he called you, and he called you his own. He said, you are my son, you are my daughter, in you I am well pleased. There is a God who has loved you since before you took your first breath, and he is saving and rescuing you tonight. Can the rest of us stand with our brothers and sisters in Christ tonight, and can we remember this? I want you to remember that we serve a God who is who he is. We serve a God that meets impossible situations. We serve a God who looks down at this world and he is not intimidated or scared. We serve a God who looks at sinners and says, you're mine, I delight in you, I love you, I save you, I rescue you. We serve a God who is not dead, he is alive, he is our living hope. Let's worship him in this place. So Father in heaven, we pray to you, come meet us in this place. Thank you for saving, thank you for rescuing, thank you for being the God who saves.